Hi, my name is Mary Cruz, and welcome to I'm So Glad You Asked, Every Woman Has a Story, and I Want to Hear Yours. Today, I would like to introduce my guest, Kathy Kelly, and we will be discussing Unexpected Doorways to Overcoming Fear. Kathy is my neighbor and my friend. I met her a few years back when she was tending to her yard, and we spoke from our driveways, as this was the height of COVID. I was running for the St. Charles Library Board and had sent an email to my neighbors announcing my run. Kathy wrote me a very welcoming email pointing out our similar paths in life. I had graduated from Loyola in 2002 with a degree in political science and peace studies, and Kathy had also graduated from Loyola with a degree in history and theology and was familiar with some of our professors from my degree. She invited me to have a visit in our driveways at some point and thus began our friendship. Our similarities began earlier than Loyola, though. Kathy was born on the south side of Chicago and attended Catholic school. This is something we bonded over, our Catholic education and growing up on the south side of the city, although for me it was a south suburb. Kathy received her MA from the Chicago Theological Seminary in Religious Education, during that time volunteering in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago at soup kitchens, another experience we have in common. When I was a freshman at Loyola, the week before I began classes in the fall of 1997, I was lucky to be part of a group called the Urban Plunge and spent a week living in a hostel in Uptown, working at soup kitchens and homeless shelters. I do not want to tell too much of Kathy's story. I will let her share. But needless to say, Kathy Kelly has lived her life fueled by compassion and chosen to serve an advocate for those who have no advocate. There is a quote from an article that I will share at the end of this episode where Kathy states, Showing kindness to others who hold different points of view makes space for people on all sides to press in and hear one another. So Kathy, welcome. Thank you for being on today. Well, thank you, Mary. I'm really happy to be here with you. Um, So we can just dive right in. And Kathy, I'd love for you to share a story that shaped you. Mm. Well, when I was a younger teacher, I was very keen on trying to make sure students, high school students, knew what kind of a world they were moving into. And it was the height of the Cold War, and there was a real um, anxiety on the part of many, many people that a nuclear exchange could happen. The Soviets were armed with a a huge nuclear arsenal. The United States had a a huge number of nuclear weapons, and they were... uh, loaded onto submarines, they were buried underneath the ground, they were carried in aircraft. And so a film that uh, might be somewhat um, similar in impact to Oppenheimer, which has just opened in theaters near us, was aired on television called The Day After. The Day After. And in my generation, and this would have been about 1985, 86, I think, we took it seriously, and it mm-hmm. was it was, a, it was kind of a rattling of, you know, oughtn't we be doing something? Right. Now, at the same time in Chicago, the civil rights movement had um, needed people to really lean in and um, press for civil rights. The racism in the city of Chicago was intense. And mm-hmm. so I had grown to greatly respect some people who were about twice my age, who were very active in the civil rights movement. And I had also, um, I remember, gone up to the treasurer at uh, St. Ignatius College Prep and said, um, 
could you lower my salary beneath the taxable income? And oh wow, yeah, I think he wanted to call the school psychologist for me. <laughs> I said, well, I, I don't want to pay for weapons, and this is one way that I can manage that. So, so I, you know, I, I think I was pretty serious about wanting to work toward disarmament. But over time, mostly at that soup kitchen that you mentioned, a number of us who were regular volunteers began to meet every Friday night after soup kitchen, and we'd sit in a circle in my apartment, and we kept trying to decide whether or not we could form a community of people that would take a very serious step toward disarmament. And what we decided to do after we made several trips to Kansas City, which was surrounded by 150 intercontinental ballistic missiles buried under the ground, and there were 1,000 of these missiles in the Midwest, which of course made the Midwest a target, were somewhere else, like the Soviet Union, to try to knock out our weapon system that was buried under the ground. Wait, do you mind if I ask a quick question? Uh-huh. How at this time did you know that was in Kansas? Like, how did you come about mm. this information that this was in Kansas City and that the Midwest was a target? Because I know you said this is the early 80s. Right. Well, um, I have a friend who's quite a good uh, sketch artist. Okay. And I think she has a photographic memory. And so it was by virtue of driving down the country roads that Nuke Watch, the organization Nuke Watch, created a booklet that was kind of like an eight and a half by 11 size booklet with maps with red dots, which we then replicated on t-shirts and postcards. And it was our way of saying a guide to the nuclear missile silo fields in the United States. And I I remember, um, I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Well, no, this is fascinating. I, I had no idea. You know, you, you wouldn't uh, until you started to notice the chain link fences and okay. small signs that say, you know, stop, go no further. And what happened is that land would be condemned and the farmers would sell it to the United States government and then they would excavate and they would um, place these tubular, long intercontinental ballistic missiles under the ground. Um, a cement slab would be on top of that, that sort of operated on a railroad track to open and close. And, you know, it's interesting, Mary, we did certainly share that moral compass that I think Mm -hmm. comes from the Catholic education we had. And there have certainly been some wonderful bishops, for instance, who've spoken out saying, you know, ban these nuclear weapons. But there Ooh, was which, a, which, which bishop? Oh, I think of Bishop Thomas Gumbleton and okay. Bishop Wester. And actually, Cardinal Supich here in Chicago oh, just wrote yeah. a beautiful article that was printed in The Hill last okay. year saying either we end nuclear weapons or they could end us. Okay, that's great. Yeah, but um, there was a time when the largest concern being voiced about the presence of these underground nuclear weapons being operated by just two people in a small control center. You know, they would go into the control center and they each had to turn the key in order to launch a bomb. And um, sometimes it would be a man and a woman. And there was a concern voiced by a, a pretty conservative Catholic newspaper saying, well, this could provide an occasion of sin. And we were, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my goodness, like you, know, you could incinerate the Holy Spirit. Yes. an entire city, but the occasion of sin might be that, you know, <laughs> a man and a woman are together in an enclosed private spot. 
Anyway, the the decision we arrived at after all of these Friday night gatherings and a few retreats and a lot of interaction with people in Kansas City okay. was that we would undertake Missouri peace planting. Missouri we, peace planting. So we planted corn on oh. top of the nuclear missile silo sites. And I think there were 16 of us. We were all in our late 20s and our 30s who decided, okay, we'll go out and do the planting, and there were lots of other people in support. They gave us housing. They um, made sure that our needs were met for transportation. They helped us contact the media. And so, uh, as one person put it, you would have had to have been living underneath um, a, a rock not to know that these 150 intercontinental ballistic nuclear missiles were buried under the ground surrounding Kansas City after this group went out and planted the corn, because we took... A film crews with us, and so oh, it was amazing. regularly on the news. And we went out and spoke at parishes, at schools. We did a long fast, and it for me it ended up being a year in federal prison. But I I think that was quite possibly one of the most educational years of my life. Um, Do you mind um, just a, another question? I mean, this is fascinating. So this is a group of individuals who obviously feel very strongly about this. This is happening here at home in the Midwest. And how did you coordinate with people in Kansas City from Chicago? Mm. How did you find those people who would house you and support you and bring in the media and bring in mm -hmm. film? Well, that's thanks very much to those elderly civil rights activists okay. I mentioned, because oh, they had gone out before us and taken some very dramatic actions. Okay. Um, it's called a pl the, the Plowshares Movement. Um, the Plowshares Movement? Yeah. I will, you, I will look that up. If you're ever in New York City, you know, there's the United Nations on one side of First Avenue. On, on the mm -hmm. other side, there's a place called the Isaiah Wall. And engraved in that wall is a really beautiful line from Scripture, from the book of Isaiah. Mm -hmm. When shall come the day when they shall beat their swords into plowshares. Oh. and their spears into pruning hooks. And then it goes on to say, nation shall not lift the sword against nation, neither shall they learn the ways of war any longer. Well, um, a group of primarily Catholics, some of them former priests and nuns, some still priests and nuns, have taken that pretty literally. And okay. they've gone to nuclear missile silo sites or to sites where nuclear weapons are at, um, in the submarines or being loaded onto airplanes, and they've actually hammered on the nuclear weapon and then poured their own blood as a symbol to say, you know, these weapons shed blood. Oh, wow. Now, a lot of people respond to that saying, well, that's vandalism. Mm -hmm. That's... that's um, Vandalism on the nuclear weapons? Yeah, yeah. Mm, okay. Um, and, and the blood pouring sometimes is quite difficult for people to accept. So we decided, our group of Midwesterners, that we would do, I mean, in a way, we, we sort of smilingly called it Plowshares Light, L-I-T-E. Um, <laughs> we didn't pour the blood, and we didn't, we, we didn't bring hammers. We planted corn, and we thought to ourselves, well, we know from going out to visit in Kansas City and small towns surrounding it that, that the farmers understand land was meant to grow corn and wheat. And we're saying, and not to harbor weapons of mass destruction. This sounds to me, this is very much, to me, I hear that you led with peace. So you led with peace as opposed to leading anti. 
like anti-war. Well, we did want to hear what the people in Missouri were saying about the previous actions. And there mm -hmm. was a, a pushback saying, well, it's the destruction and the um, the blood pouring that, that was unsettling. So we thought, well, let's try this. And so what happened that's kind of a shaping memory for Ooh, me. Yes, please do share. That, okay, I was, uh, my heart was hammering. Um, there's a barbed wire fence surrounding the missile silo site. And I had said, well, I can go by myself and that way we can cover more sites. I think there were 16 of us. So some people doubled up and some of us went singly. But my friend Jay Lamble dropped me off at the site and he said, you know, as soon as you get out of that car, I'm out of here. And so <laughs> I, I was feeling a bit nervous. Was he scared, you think? He just didn't want a picture of his license plate to oh, mean okay. that he would be tracked. And he, oh, so, understand, yeah, understandably. So I had six pellets of pink corn in my pocket mm. and a tablespoon, and that was really my first and almost only agricultural act. I I planted the corn, and then it was a beautiful morning, you know, when the mist is rising off the mm -hmm. ground and you can listen to the birds. It was quite early. And I sat on the cement lid atop of the nuclear weapon, and you could hear kind of like a vending machine buzz in the background. But otherwise, it was quiet. What was that from? The bomb underneath. Oh, Kathy. Oh, and then no. I saw a vehicle speeding down the country road, and it skidded to a stop, and the pebbles flew, and out came four men in full military garb, you know, helmets and combat boots and walkie-talkies and camouflage. And one of them said into his walkie-talkie, all personnel, please clear the site. And um, I just did exactly what they told me to do. Stand up, put your arms in the air, step to the left, step to the right. And I thought, oh, I hope they have the key um, because oh, wow. I didn't want to try to climb the barbed wire topped fence. Anyway, then I was very swiftly kneeling down in the grass with my hands cuffed behind me. And one of the soldiers was behind me with a, a weapon. And then the other three got into the vehicle and took off. Oh, wow. I mean, I don't know, maybe they needed to check and see what does the next chapter of the manual say to right, do. Right. We had told the white man Air Force Base that there would be an action of nonviolent civil disobedience committed in the missile silo fields of Missouri. So it wasn't... So they were aware. Yeah, they knew. I mean, I, okay. it wasn't like they would be totally taken off guard. So I, in some ways, am hopelessly extroverted, Mary. I I think I lasted about two minutes, if that, in silence. And I would also be the same way, Kathy. So yeah, Chatty Kathy <laughs> yeah, takes yeah. over. <laughs> and so I started to tell the young soldier, whom I didn't turn around and look at, you know, I'm handcuffed, right? But I just started to tell him why we did what we did, mm -hmm. that we were concerned for children and and that we hoped maybe this action could someday be of benefit to children. He knows and loves. Aww. And then I asked him, do you think the corn will grow? And he said, I don't know, ma'am, but I sure hope so. Oh, And then I, I just got the him, chills. I asked, would you like to say a prayer? And he said, yes, ma'am. So I did the St. Francis peace prayer. Lord, make me a channel of your peace where there is darkness. Let me so light where there is that. sadness, joy, where there is, uh, um, grant that I may not seek so much to be pardoned as to pardon, to be loved as to love with all my soul. And he said, amen. Oh. And then he asked me, 
ma'am, would you like a drink of water? And I said, oh, "Oh, yes, please. And then, all right, I'm handcuffed. I believe he had a canteen. So he said, ma'am, please tip your head back. And I did. I, you know, I can still feel that water dribbling down my chin. This soldier squeezed the canteen in order to give ma'am a drink of water. And he needed both hands to do it. Mm-hmm. So it, I don't think he necessarily put the gun down. It might have been on a shoulder sling. But in a way, he took a risk to do an act of kindness for a complete stranger. And I believe... I, I, I wasn't there, but hearing the story, I believe your actions, and I believe this with all my heart, when we are kind to others and we show compassion to others, I think some. I think sometimes in life people are so not used to that, that when they see a person truly being a humanitarian, it opens up something in them. So mm. your active piece of, um, you know, sowing seeds that day, you know, sowing corn, I think it showed him, and then asking him to pray, it showed him you know, this this woman is a human, and I'd like to be a mm. human right back. That's how I would take it. Well, the thing that surprised me so much over the years is how tied I am, I think, in a good way to his question. Are you? Do you want a drink of water? Because, uh, you know, here we are now at a point where the fertile crescent is like powder because the water has disappeared. We've got places... Mm-hmm. Here in the United States, where people are dying of thirst on the job because the climate has gotten so hot that mm-hmm. you know work-related jobs, if people don't drink water, they die on the job. We've got places like Flint, Michigan, where people don't have clean water, and you know we're facing. It's a hard phrase, but ecological collapse. Mm-hmm. You know, as we extract more and more out of the Earth's crust, then there's not enough of the fluid that's needed to maintain our Earth, and and the the, the planet is baking, mm-hmm. and we're getting the warnings. And so I, I think you know that soldier making the choice to treat me like a human being who might be thirsty, and choosing that over a more rigid. Protect, you know, mission to protect the nuclear weapon underneath. You know, I think today, my goodness, they're now beginning to reinstall these intercontinental ballistic missiles in Western states like Wyoming and Montana, Utah, and the Dakotas. And um, there's a, a, a plan to spend $60 billion every year for the next 10 years. The, the aggregate will be $634 billion. To put nuclear missiles? To put nuclear missiles under the ground, to refurbish the Navy's ships and submarines that service the nuclear missiles, and okay. to make sure the aircraft are able to carry the nuclear weapons. And so, in a way, we're deciding... That rather than take care of the children, especially I think of children that are starving to death in other parts of the world, rather than defend ourselves from environmental catastrophe, rather than figure out how to assist the many, many people that will become refugees because of climate change, Mm -hmm. we're saying, no, we're going to take care of our weapons. And, you know, we don't sign on to the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons the nine states that possess the weapons are all saying, uh-uh, we're not going to ratify that treaty. But I think, you know, we're getting to a point where we 
we can't expect that the children Mm -hmm. who will be so radically affected by these choices can somehow solve those problems. It, it's, it's our responsibility. And, you know, you and I have the great fortune to live on a street where almost every afternoon in clement mm-hmm. weather, you can hear the children outside. And I think the it's most... pretty amazing. Yeah. The most universal sound of beauty in any language has to be the sound of children at play. Yeah. But they can't solve these problems. And so that's oh. sort of where I'm thinking. Uh, I know I'm thinking many, many days about that young soldier. Well, how old were you, how old were you on that day? How I believe I was 36 years old. Okay, so a young 36 year old Kathy Kelly. I mean, you're still young, but a so this is very formative. I think I think our 30s, 20s, and 30s mm. are very formative. That has clearly stayed with you since that day, and that shaped. I'm assuming your future path and the choices you made to get involved with organizations and the work you did. Am I correct? Well, it did very much. Um, you know, the experience of going to prison was really important for so me. So you went to prison right after this? Um, pretty much. I mean, there was the, the wheels of justice moved slowly. What was the charge? Uh, criminal trespass to a military installation. Criminal, okay. And I took a bench trial. Okay. Um, and uh, if you don't occasion the expense for the government of providing a jury for a jury trial, they tend perhaps not to be as as tough in their sentencing. And so, I was sentenced to a year, but I the the uh, the judge could have um, given me consecutive um, sentences I, I, for the charges, and instead he made it concurrent, and so it amounted to a year. And um, you know. I liked being in graduate school. It was an extra couple of years to grow up in a way, but I'm sure I met people in graduate school who were more uh, anxious and and more unhappy than I was in in, in federal prison. I, in fact, oh, so I wasn't at the Chicago unha- Theological Seminary. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and I wasn't unhappy at all, really. Um, I met some of the most beautiful people I could ever in meet. Prison? Yeah, they could I have been my it. next door neighbors, my coworkers, my in-laws, but um, all of them were suffering a great deal because of the stigma of being a prisoner, because of family separation, because of the difficulties they'd have upon release to be able to find work. So I, I'm not at all a fan of the prison system. Oh, I Kathy, think it's we'll terrible. have to do another episode about this. I feel very strongly about criminal justice reform in this country. Mm. Um, and if there's, I mean, who knows what my path will be, but I, I feel very strongly. And I, I do understand that it's almost such a big undertaking that it would have to be completely collapsed, which is okay. It should be completely shattered in order to build it up because you're right, there is such a a sense of, you know, breaking families apart, the monetary, the stigma when you get out, when you're a felon. You know, I, I believe when you're a felon, sometimes you can't vote, correct? Well, if it's a misdemeanor felony, you can, but if it's a higher level of felony, you can't. And I see it as a continuation of enslavement in mm-hmm. many ways. Uh, and and there's, uh, you know, every university every year graduates a new group of lawyers, and many go on to do brilliant and greatly needed things in international human rights law and environmental law. But um, the criminal justice system is kind of predicated on having lawyers who whose work will be to prosecute criminals and um uh, we have a huge, huge 
prison population in well, and the it makes United money. States. Exactly. It makes a lot of money. Um, I believe in, I, I'm assuming you might believe this too, but if not, I'd love to hear. I believe, I hope we go in a direction of more rehabilitation. Or, or, and this is something I've given a lot of thought to, community works, putting people in the community to do service uh, as opposed to putting them behind bars. Yeah, and I think that restorative justice restorative can justice. make a lot of sense as well. And also, um, you know, when we think about some of the greatest crimes that are being committed, I think we have to think about the manufacture of nuclear weapons and every other kind mm-hmm. of weapon that used to kill non-combatants in, in every war all around the world. And I think we have to think about the um, kinds of things that create the greatest health problems for people in the United States. Um, I'm thinking about firearms that kill people yes. and uh, tobacco, alcohol. You know, ATF. Yeah. And, ATF. And so, you know, we... We would never go to the chief executive officer of a major weapon producing company and say, you're going to have to be held accountable. You're going to have to go to court. And I don't say lock anybody up, um, but I do think rehabilitation, as you mentioned, is a good idea. I, pre- I, you know, I appreciate that you said restorative justice instead. I, I like that much better than rehabilitation. I, I think it, I, I do really hope in my lifetime and your lifetime we see steps towards that. Mm. And, you know, again, should we rehabilitate a company? You know, if you can take a company that's making weapons and, you know, retool it so that they can make uh, the material to retrofit the housing stock and install solar energy and wind energy and um, build high-speed trains and, you know, help to make this country one that's not so antique. I mean, we have a lot of catching up to do. Especially in terms of infrastructure. Exactly, yeah. I think, I'm not saying this to be funny, but you might laugh, but I think, you would be phenomenal if you ever chose to want to be in a position of um, local government. I think you can make a lot of change. I think you're making tremendous change now with what you do, but I think we need people like you who think the way you do, but you you lead with you lead with rationale. You know, sense. You lead with you know. You're very sensitive to people. You lead with compassion, and but you also give it a lot of thought. Like there's so many layers to how you think about the way our world runs, mm. and sometimes I think. I mean, I know for myself, I only think on one layer, but then we're talking today and I see that there's so many layers, like an onion to unpeel. Hmm. Well, I myself am thinking about the younger generation, Um, you know, uh, they're steering into a a, a very, very challenging world situation. Absolutely. uh, It's one of the things I'm quite keen on these days is called the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal. Okay. And I've been so happy that that a group of young college students have helped us with a lot of the research. And um, this isn't a new idea. You know, after World War I, which was like an industrialized slaughter, mm-hmm. people all across the United States were forming groups to oppose the, any possibility of another such war happening. 60,000 students had taken an oath saying they would never fight in a foreign war. And um, there was a Senate uh, committee called the Nye Committee, NYE, and and the head of that committee had written a book called Merchants of Death. And they were pointing fingers at the companies that had made huge profits off of selling weapons that were used in World War One. Mm. But then it was almost no time. World War Two. World War Two, And, um, you know, the... the 
the top military brass in 1945 from the United States were meeting with the top militarists in Great Britain. And they were saying, can you influence President Truman not to drop the atomic bomb? And Dwight Eisenhower had also said that he didn't agree with dropping the atomic bomb. Stalin and the Soviet Union were saying, okay, once the Nazi threat to us is shattered, we will tell the Japanese, they had a non-aggression pact with Japan, Okay, but they said, we will tell Japan that we are going to wage war against them. And they were ready to do that August 15th. The Emperor Hirohito was someone that initially Churchill, Winston Churchill himself, was saying in private meetings, don't dismantle the entire empire because he's considered to be a divine figure. Make it into a constitutional monarchy, but don't dethrone the emperor. And then we have a much better chance of getting a Japanese surrender. The combination of the Soviet Union declaration Mm -hmm. of war against Japan and some survival of the emperor allowing that much dignity or face-saving would bring about a Japanese surrender. They could have waited mm-hmm. till August 15th. And it's interesting also that um, a Japanese woman was telling us about a book that's not been translated into English yet, but the memoirs of people who surrounded Hirohito are that when he learned about the bombing of Hiroshima, he showed no emotion. When he learned about the bombing of Nagasaki... No emotion. But when he learned that uh, on August 9th that Stalin said, okay, we're going to declare war, he was panicked and there was chaos. And And this is in a memoir? Yeah. What's the name of the memoir? Well, it's in Japanese. I'm so sorry. Oh, no, don't be sorry at all. Don't be sorry at all. I'll I'll look for that. Okay. Um, But the, you know, the reality is that, you know, in those days... They didn't have internet and the kinds of communications that we have. And so the Japanese empire was really very far flung, you know, many, many islands in different spots of the world. So how would you even get the message to everybody that Japan has chosen to surrender? Um, they they needed the emperor and the, the stature of the emperor to order people to stop the war. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. militarists understood that. But... I think that the United States' um, highest levels of administration, President Truman and his secretary, Byrne, wanted to more or less test the nuclear, the atomic bomb, by dropping it on Hiroshima. Mm. And in nine seconds, 80,000 people were incinerated. And then to do it again, 40,000 more people incinerated to show to the Soviet Union we have this bomb, and we will use it. We're willing to use it. Awful. And then that, of course, ushered in the nuclear arms race that has brought us to where we are right now. And, you know, we can't even begin to calculate the numbers of people who've starved to death. Right. While our choice was to keep on building up the weapons that could cause our extermination. Do you believe that that's driven by greed and power to continue to build that up? I think you've nailed it. I think it's fear and greed. 
Fear and greed, okay. And I think when people convince themselves that they can't live with other people, that um, you know this other group of people will somehow try to take from them, that brings about a great deal of fear, their ability to have control over the world's resources. Uh, it, it's a, and then when they have enough weapon power to say to other people all around the world, if you don't subordinate yourselves to fulfill our national interests, we can eliminate you. And if you don't believe us, Look what we did to Iraq. I know this is not the best term, but when it's described that way, I, the only thing I can think is bully. Mm. A bull, just a, I mean, worse than a bully by all means, but just such a bully. Someone who's just bullying someone else into doing what they want to do. Um, I, I wish, yeah. You know, I, I'm so respectful of the people who developed the treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons. But like you, and I think about that bullying, I wish there was some kind of treaty people could sign to prohibit nuclear threats. Absolutely. Because it's a little bit like holding a gun to somebody's head and saying, are you going to do what I tell you? And then you're living in a state of constant fear, anxiety, flight mm -hmm. or fight. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think courage is the ability to control our fears ooh. rather than be governed by our fears. Oh, I like that. And I, it's curious to me how in my own life, there were certainly times when I'd be governed not only by my own fears, but sometimes even more so by the fears that others had of what might happen to me. Or, yeah. and, and so I think we catch courage from one another. You know, like when, when we start to think, um, you know, I don't want my life to be governed by fear, and I certainly don't want it to be governed by fears others have that I don't even share myself, and then how can I find the courage to act in accord with what I really do believe? Mm -hmm. Do you, so after you got out of federal prison, it was a year? Well, um, actually, they had the old law and the new law. And under the old law, you could get good time. And then after 1988, I believe, the good time disappeared if you had less than a year. If a, if a judge sentenced you to a year and a day, then you didn't get any um, good time. So I have to say... But I got some of the good time. You because, got, okay, good. Yeah, I think my counselor, they called the person that sort of does your paperwork inside the prison a counselor, and I, I think she fudged it. And so I, I served a little over nine months. But I had also done a couple months in the county jail. This is just my thoughts on this, is to me... I don't see how it it serves you, it serves your family, or it served any community by having taxpayer dollars have you in prison for that long. If they, I'm trying to think how to say this, if there was a, wouldn't you be better served? Well, I'd, I mean, I don't think what you did was wrong. You know, I thought it was a beautiful, peaceful, peaceful, an act of peace. Um, but wouldn't it have been better served for you to be out in your community, educating people, talking with people, working with people, mm. as opposed to giving up nine months of your life to sit somewhere, again, taxpayer funded. Mm. I, that's, how, that's just how I, I look at it. I, uh -huh. I don't know. That's just how I look at it, especially mm. when I hear that story. Well, I had tried so many times to learn Spanish in my life up okay. till that point. And it was, um, it was it's, it can be pretty cold in Lexington, Kentucky in the wintertime and too cold really to go outside. So we were all very crowded. The prison was built for 800 people and there were 1,400 of us oh, in wow. that prison. 
And so you had to have some place to go in the evenings. You know, everybody's sort of crowded. And so the Spanish choir took me on like their little orphan. And um, so I learned, I mean, I'm not perfect by any means. But do you use I Spanish? Can, like? Yeah, I can, I can kind of make myself understood and I can, I can read it and I can often understand others. And I, I ascribe that completely to the immersion of living for those nine months amongst Colombian Hispanic women. And they were wonderful women to be with. Um, also, it changed my way of um, being a teacher. And I think... Uh, my did you go back to teaching after that? I did, yeah. Okay. Um, and also in other social situations, I, I knew I never want to be the warden. Even if it was a matter of you know doing an overnight at the shelter, I didn't want to be the person who would tell another person, uh, okay, you sleep on that mattress or you empty your pockets. And I get it, you know, you've got to have somebody who's sort of in charge. But I I had a certain revulsion to um, seeing myself in a social situation elevated to the position of being the warden, the one who makes the decisions. So that that has stayed with me. I think it made me more of a collegial person, mm-hmm. no matter what kind of setting I might be entering into. And I was I was happy that it made that difference in in being a, in mm. any kind of education setting. So time for me of learning was um, a real gift. There's there's a tremendous racism sewn into our culture, and I think it finds a great deal of expression in the. the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't think I would have begun to understand the extent of, of pain that's engendered by that without you know, being mm-hmm. in a... I, I remember I had a bunk bed, top bunk, that was just right across from a bank of phones. And I didn't want to eavesdrop, but I couldn't really help but hear so many times, almost the same conversation. A woman would call home, maybe her mother, maybe her grandmother would answer the phone. She'd immediately ask, how are the kids? Often there would be some kind of a plea on the part of the person at the other end, please understand, we don't have any money to send you, we don't have any money to buy extras for the kids. No, nobody can come and visit you because nobody's got the gas money. And so the woman might say, but I'm afraid the kids are going to forget what I look like. Oh. You know, that kind of separation. You know, if somebody commits a crime and and there's a threat to the population, but again, I want to say the greatest threats are not coming from people who were nonviolent drug offenders. The great threats are coming from people who manufacture weapons mm-hmm. and um, uh, chemicals that are destroying the planet. But okay, it, don't take away every freedom. Maybe isolate somebody from a person that they would treat in a predatory way. Right. Uh, but we don't have to take away every freedom and every possibility for dignity. So it sounds like, I know you just, even talking about being immersed for nine months, you said you were there for nine months. And then I did two and subsequent the, prison sentences. So because of planting corn on top of a nuclear missile, and how impactful that was. It even sounds like this being in prison, being a direct result of that action was also very impactful in your life and absolutely shaped you and shaped your teaching, if I understand that. I think that's true. And then it also um, gave me a little bit more of a sense of 
I guess I'd say assertiveness. If somebody would tell mm-hmm. me to do something that I believe is, is wrongful, in a way, I mean, it almost sounds like an impudent little brat, but I, my sense would be, well, are you going to make me? Because even if you put me in prison, even that if you doesn't put me in prison. Mean that. And so, so I think that um, I surprised myself in a way, uh, acting in accord with that. And so it wasn't a big step for me in terms of my own view of um, life and the value of life to go over to the war zone in Iraq and join a group of people that decided that we would um, go to an area near the border between Saudi Arabia and Iraq and set up what we called the Gulf Peace Team. When was this? Um, I guess it was shortly after I got out of prison. It was 1990 um, that I left the United States to go over to Jordan and then Iraq. And um, And that was the beat. The beginning of the, the in 1991, the United States it's, went to war against Iraq. Desert Storm. Desert Storm. Desert Storm. Yeah. Okay, I remember that. You would have been so young. I was twelve. Oh my! But I do. It's. I mean, it's very vivid. I think it was very vivid just because I think it was all over the news at the time. Uh-huh. I just. I do remember. I mean, I don't. I don't remember exactly why we went there at that time, but I just mm. remember that was the war in my lifetime mm. as a young person. Well, you know, prior to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, he went into Kuwait with tanks and wanted to say Kuwait formerly was a province of Iraq and we want to take it back. And that's wrongful. You know, the border had been drawn by Europeans, actually, but you can't just, you know, look the other way if one country Mm -hmm. invades another country. But the United States had just invaded Grenada. And the United States had invaded Panama, and the United States had had supported cruel and terrible dictators in South America and in Central America. And so, yes, Saddam Hussein was a dictator, and yes, Iraq invaded Kuwait, but there could be ways of diplomacy to resolve the problems that were caused. And April Glaspie was working with the State Department before Saddam invaded, before Iraq invaded. Kuwait. And Saddam Hussein called her in and he said that they were thinking about doing this. And she cabled the State Department and she came back to him and said, the United States will not meddle in the affairs of a Middle Eastern country. Mm -hmm. So in a way that some say signaled a green light. But then once Saddam Hussein went into Kuwait, there was a massive buildup of every kind of military piece of equipment on the border of Saudi Arabia to go into Kuwait. And they, they in, in short order, drove Saddam's forces out. But now these are conscripts, young Iraqis who did not have a choice about whether or not to be pulled into the Iraqi military. And so they had been in trenches um, at the border area between Kuwait and Iraq. And the United States bulldozers just went with the sand piling up and buried many of those young conscripts alive. Oh my gosh. And when they were walking with their hands up, trying to walk toward what they hoped would be, you know, maybe capture as prisoners of war, they were gunned down. Some of the young U.S. soldiers said it was like shooting fish in a barrel. Oh gosh. It was like a turkey shoot. And one of those soldiers who had been an incredible marksman, he was driving a Bradley vehicle mm-hmm. and 
He could just, it was, you know, remarkable. He could immediately shoot down every single pop-up target when he was going through training. And um, he wrote to his Aunt Edna, and he said, killing Iraqis was really hard at first, but after a while, killing Iraqis got easier. Oh, gosh. His name was Timothy McVeigh. Oh. And he's the person who attacked the Oklahoma Federal Building. Yes. But who trained, who taught Timothy oh McVeigh to believe that killing people could get easier? Oh, I had no idea about the story. Yeah. I've never heard that story. And you know, Marines were being trained to say the word kill like 3,000 times a day. That ha something happens to you. I think it's ingrained. It's subconsciously then must be ingrained. I mean, I took care of my dad for the last eight years of his life. Did you? And... Toward the end, I was getting a bit sleep deprived, and you know, Dad would call in the middle of the night, and I'd get up and I'd go back to him, and I knew he was getting dehydrated, and I wanted him to drink cranberry juice, and he knocked the cranberry juice out of my hand, and it went all over the last pair of clean pajamas and the the bedclothes, and I saw so I got Dad out of the bed, got him changed into clean pajamas, changed the bed, still wanted to give him cranberry juice. And he wanted to lie down, and I wanted him to drink this cranberry juice, and I pulled him up, and I shook my own father. Oh. And I loved this man I as know. well I should have. He loved me. When I was a child, I didn't change my own diapers. But, you know, if two people can be at a point of rage, as I was, not two people really, one person, where you shake another person, imagine if you're trained to say the word kill, 3,000 times a day while you're carrying a weapon and you're away from your home and you've been told it. So th mm. we don't have to be that way. Right. We don't have to train ourselves or our young people to so demonize another person that you would believe there's no other choice other than to, to kill. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. And I mean, I think about Ukraine today, 20,000 people with prosthetic devices, mm -hmm. you know, their limbs blown away. And and these cluster munitions, they'll keep killing people for generations because if they don't explode right away, then they're under the ground or in those children's play lots or on the roadways and people can pick it up. And to this day in Afghanistan, there are these emergency surgical centers for victims of war and they treat three people every single day who are victims of unexploded ordnance that explodes and then maims their bodies. So, you know, why would we keep on making this kind of equipment? Why would we keep planning in this way when the military can never defend us from climate catastrophe? Mm -hmm. it, it can't defend us from a new pandemic. Right. Oh, wow, Kathy. Oh, my gosh. Um, I really appreciate you sharing that. That's, I, I feel like I've gotten such a lesson today on things that I had no idea about. And to me, it makes no sense. You know, war makes no sense to me at all. Um, I do have a few questions I'd like to ask you. And I, I feel like it, you've answered some of it, but I'd love to hear your thoughts um, just when I ask these questions. So your story, the one you shared, um, and the the title of this episode is um, and I love that you pick this, ma'am, would you like a drink of water? And that's a beautiful story. And I hope the people listening feel just as touched as I do about that. 
what has your story taught you about yourself and life? Mm. Well, that you can't predict. You, you, you can't determine exactly what's going to happen in the future. We, we just simply don't know. And so I think it's, it's, it's worthwhile. It's, it's a good gamble, if you will, mm-hmm. to trust that uh, ways of behavior that extend the hand of friendship to another person um, could result in, in very good outcomes. Mm. Um, y- you know, we're sort of, I think it was Albert Camus said, we're in history up to our necks and we face a formidable gamble Mm-hmm. But I, for my part, will, will wager that words are stronger than munitions. Mm-hmm. And I think that goes for verbal violence as well as physical violence. Um, so the, the constant um, search to find ways to communicate with other people is, I think, so, so valuable. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you grow older, um, learning new ways of doing things is actually quite healthful. Um, you know, the, the, the mind-body interaction. And so, you know, I, I look at people who are learning other languages when they're toward the end of their life, and I think, oh, what a, what a wonderful thing to do. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Um, well, then, how, how has your story inspired you to show up in this world? Hmm. Well, I think that community is very, very important. Um, And sharing resources is uh, um, a gift and and a joy. So I, those, and and then also being able to be in proximity to people who are part of another generation or, you know, a very diversified array of people, I think that just is a pure gift. Okay. Sharing resources. Um, I uh, I've been very fortunate to have learned a lot from a group of teenagers, um, mm. most of whom are now in either Pakistan or Portugal, or hoping to get to Spain. Some of whom are still in Afghanistan, but um, they were uh, very good about adhering to a proverb that they had learned as little people themselves: "Blood does not wash away blood." And oh yeah. Yeah, they they've they have been affected greatly by war and by impoverishment, but they um, themselves have been adamant of wanting to abolish all wars, not cherry pick. That like oh, there's no war they want. Um. So, Kathy, where can people find your writing? Uh, well, I've been really lucky. There's a website called Common Dreams. Just spell out those two words, commondreams.org. And they've archived just about anything that I've written over the past several decades. And then I did write a book, Other Lands Have Dreams, from Baghdad to Pekin Prison. Pekin Prison is in Illinois, actually. People think I was locked up in China, but no. Oh, <laughs> it's, uh, oh Pekin, Illinois. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, and, and that's a reflection on some of the experiences of living in war zones and also living with um, people in prison, and um, is it I'm, on is it on Amazon? Mm, used copies, yeah. Used copies, okay. Or at the library? Sure. Well, I think I'll, I'll check if it's at the library. the library. And I'm uh, sometimes I'm a tardy correspondent, but uh, if anybody ever wants to write to me and ask questions or give critique or suggest alternatives, uh, it's Kathy K A T H Y dot 
Well, no, just Kathy at vcnv.org. We'll okay, get great. You. And I'll put that in the show notes too. I meant to say this earlier, and I, I hope I'm getting this quote r- right, but have you ever um, read this quote by Mother Teresa? And it said, you will never find me at an anti-war rally, but at a pro, no, an anti-war protest, but at a pro-peace rally. It's something along those lines. Mm. And I used to have that. Um, have you heard that before? I, to be honest, that's the first time I heard I'll, that. I'll find it and send it to you. But I remember um, having, obviously going to Loyola, having a Jesuit education and being very rooted in social justice. That's something that I used to have up in my apartment, this mm. quote. It just, it really, st- it really struck me in our conversation today. It struck me because you are very driven by peace. That's how I take this. You are driven by peace. You have this compassion and this sensitivity and this love for children, for people that's real and genuine and it's driven by peace. And I always, I've never met mother Teresa, but I always admired her because she was very driven by peace, Mm, mm. you know, like a peaceful heart. Um, And I appreciated that. And I appreciate you being on today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Mary. Oh, this has been great. What a listener you are. (laughs) Well, I, this is wonderful. It's been such a beautiful, I appreciate you sharing that story. I hope that this is impactful to all people, women, that they feel that it resonates with them. If you have a story to share, please feel free to submit to I'm so glad you asked podcast at gmail, gmail.com. And if you're on Instagram, please follow us on Instagram at I'm so glad you asked podcast. I'm so glad you asked is part of the Trident Network. And to learn more about our videos, live shows, and other podcasts, please visit the tridentnetwork.com. <laughs>